Welcome to Gold Digging with Stephen Webster, where we dig for nuggets of gold from friends and family connected to our journey. Um, today, very special guest, long-term friend. We've known each other longer than any other of our guests on uh, Gold Digging. So, uh, welcome Pete Tong. Thank you, thank uh, you for having me. <laughs> thank you, well thank you for uh, taking time out of what looks like, considering it's been such a long time in, in your profession, such a hectic schedule still, which is good, I presume. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it gets a bit frustrating, but um, I think that to, this this particular um, time is because is I live in LA and I, I'm in London, and I've actually been traveling around Europe this, this past um, couple of weeks, so it just makes... There's never enough time when you're in London. You always want to cram everything in, so that's 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 why. That's what happens but, yeah. when you go to the sunshine. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so look, we've. Um, I was making notes on on the train on the way in this morning, and I realised, by God, I mean, because we've known each other such a long time, it's a really long list in a very little, in a very short period of time. We've got to cover. I'm gonna I'm gonna read it out. Okay. <laughs> Gravesend, Pocahontas, the Nelson, Margate, Atlantis, Ibiza. Superstar DJs, house music, Radio 1, Shakespeare's sister, movies, it's all gone Pete Tong, EDM, LA, <laughs> Ibiza Classics Orchestra, MBEs and Hollywood stars. Yeah, the Hollywood stars bit, I'll, yeah, we'll get on to that. <laughs> I didn't know if we were allowed to talk about no, that. No. So that I, I actually, that, that, can I just confess now, you completely misunderstood that. That's oh. not, I haven't got one. That was actually an invite for a, for a party. <laughs> And someone made, we made those up um, for my radio show that every time we gave someone um, an essential new tune, they got one of these stars. So I just used one for myself for, for an invite. But, oh um, my God. Well, you haven't know got a Hollywood what? star yet. You are a Hollywood star anyway. So I really, I just want to now go, you know, off, off script and sort of talk about um, our, we were both brought up in the, uh, in, I suppose you call it a bit gritty, gritty estuary town of, of Gravesend. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, I first heard of you at the pub, the Nelson, where you were behind the decks and I was, I would say behind the bar, I was in front <laughs> of the bar. The bar. <laughs> I kind of want to know a bit about, first of all, your, your sort of um, growing up, just a little bit of that. And then, and then what took you to, uh, to being DJing, you know, in the local pub? I was born in Dartford. My mum used to be, have a pub called The Princes, um, which her father owned. So her, my mum and her sister, my aunt, um, worked in The Princes. My father was a bookie, the turf accountant. And um, with a little bit of money that he made, they, they moved to the countryside, which was actually Longfield. So when I came out of hospital as a baby, I, I, I was living in Longfield. And then we kind of graduated to a, to a slightly posher bit, which was called Hartley. My dad's businesses were in Gravesend, though, so he was he, he had shops in Gravesend, um, and I went I went to school, got sent to um, a kind of posh school, I guess, um, which was originally it was um, Steep Hill School in um, in Longfield, and then I went to King's School in Rochester, and it was a school really that I kind of obviously at that age I really kind of got into music, and I wanted to be in a band. I wanted to be a drummer. And my dad got me a drum kit, and I used to sit at home obsessed with um, like copying um, the Who and Black Sabbath and Deep Purple and um, Emerson Lake and Palmer and all these kind of slightly and and Slade and T Rex. Um, and then I we actually formed a band at school, 
well, we were obs- we were obsessed by a band called the Heavy Metal Kids that actually used to come to Gravesend and play, um, and we used to dress like them, and we had we had various names. I think we were called the Long Coat Wallies at one point, <laughs> and then and then um, off yeah, the yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Heavy Metal Kids was we, we, that's kind of who we, we wanted to be. And I think the first song I could we could ever play was Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple. Um, but really, it was the, it was just yeah, being involved in music. I, mean, I saw I saw um, a, there was a school disco one day, and I saw a DJ for the first time, and I just thought like that was so much sexier um, than the racket we were making. So I kind of yeah flipped, with, and me and a friend of mine, a guy called Nigel Burns, God, I don't know if you if you're still out there. Um, we had a deep, we kind of formed a kind of DJ duo, and it started off doing like weddings and bar mitzvahs and school discos and. Um, my first, then, then the two of us kind of split up quite quickly, and I found myself um, doing a party in Hartley, actually, at a village hall. And my dad helped me, um, and we, I went around um, the village with posters, st- stuck them on trees in um, plastic bags, and we, I held this kind of rave <laughs> where, where I was literally playing like T Rex and Mark Boland and The Clash, probably. Um, and the and I, I remember we ended up back at my in my kitchen. I was only about sixteen, and we made a hundred. I made a hundred pounds, wow. so um, it was like I, I was almost in profit for my first ever kind of proper pub, public gig, and it just it just kind of went from there. And then because um, my dad was in Gravesend, I I just got to that age where you could kind of get into pubs. A lot of my mates were from Gravesend, and I ended up with this residency at the Nelson. Um, in the middle of Gravesend, which was, I think, a Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. So God knows how long it went on for, but it seemed like a significant part of my life because it, it became part of my kind of social life. And then the crowd that went to the Nelson, I, I just got lucky, really. It was a, it, they were very musically kind of... Music was a big part of their lives. And I remember, um, obviously, Gravesend was quite unique in the late 70s as being, um, in terms of cultural diversity that we had a strong west indian community we had a strong like indian community didn't we um and then we had you know i just happened to have a bunch of mates that used to go up to london they were all a bit older than me um and they used to go up to london and go to these clubs like crackers and um global village um and then into essex to to the lacy lady and they would just come back with stories and music and that, that's kind of how I kind of got into being a kind of soul boy and, and, and starting to play reggae so that I kind of formed my everything you, you know about me today was really formed I guess in that pub that that's when I stopped slowly playing T-Rex and Mark Boland and um and Slade and started just playing James Brown and Funkadelic and um Dennis Brown and Tapazuki and um Dillinger. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. yeah. You know what? You know what you just said. There. I, I. I forgot that your dad was a bookie. Yeah. You know, my granddad was a bookie. Unfortunately, my granddad lost all of his money before I think right. I've got a chance to even get a right. look in. But, um, but you know, a couple of things here. This sort of diverse ethnic diversity of Gravesend. It was like a microcosm. Was it? it was like. You know, because you're right, our friends were from all over the place, it yeah. felt like. I mean, you know, ultimately, I suppose you'd say, well, they were all mostly, anyway, born in, in, in or around Gravesend. But their parents would have definitely come from 
Kenya, India, Pakistan, all the places Jamaica. that kind of Jamaica yeah. where there was like a British reach. Yeah. yeah, I remember like pictures in the back of my transit van of like taking groups down to Margate and you'd open up the back and it was like the Benetton ad. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It was like, it, we oh, did have wow. a, I did have a mixed bunch. So, yeah, um, well, yeah but, but completely by accident, but that's the way it was. And that's, yeah, definitely had a kind of profound effect on me. So, so I think that the other thing that happened in the Nelson was, was that people that were coming to the Nelson were dressing up in different clothes, you know, and before there was like this kind of musical split. I think. Yeah. So I think when punk kind of really broke, you were either in, into punk or you were in you just stayed as a soul boy kind of thing i think for me just being like a young kid yeah i'll i'll remember exactly i was on i was at chris hill as yeah. a dj yeah and we were soul boys essentially yeah. beret fluffy jumpers and all yeah. that stuff and and i can't remember Smiths. if i was a gold miner or lacy lady it was yeah, one yeah, of the yeah, two yeah. and there was just a bunch of punks there exactly yeah yeah and and, it, and it, he put on I think it was Anarchy in the yeah, UK, yeah, yeah. and then he smashed it. Yeah. He said, you're never gonna hear that shit in my club again, yeah. right? That was that was the end of that, and I was yeah. like, oh my God, no, this is this is me. I've gotta go down the punk route. Didn't yeah. he, um, I think there was punk downstairs or upstairs in, it was in Seven Kings, Lacey Lady, yeah, right. yeah, 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 that's yeah. what, yeah. But so. that's, uh, and that was, what was that, like 77 or 76? Yeah, 76 yeah. probably, actually, yeah. before, yeah. So I was buying all those records, but yeah, I wasn't wasn't really playing them. I mean, Magnificent Seven by The Clash used to get played in both because it was yeah, like, yeah, yeah, well, it, it was a bit later. Interestingly, with Gravesend, because like before you, the, uh, the the most famous inhabitants of Gravesend, I think, were like were poker hunters who yeah, <laughs> had yeah. kind of all, already given up the ghost by exactly, the time she yeah, was there, yeah. and and maybe Charles Dickens or something. You know? Right. But, but <laughs> it, it was a place where there seemed like there was a lot of energy, and but you needed to get out, didn't you? you yeah, know, that was definitely the thing. Now, yeah. And I've got to get out. Yeah. It's it's funny talking about it now because the way we travel and the way everyone kind of travels around and you take so much for granted. But you know, a trip up to London on the train was actually quite quite a mission. I mean, I used to go up to London regularly just to go and seek out the music. So I used to go into Soho or go to Holborn or venture as far as um, like Craven Park Road, like Harlesden and Willesden, to to to, to go to the, to go to these shops to, to buy music because that was the only way you were going to get it because obviously everything was on vinyl. But um, yeah, it was it was the Gravesend people that was into fashion, into music, had to get out yeah. of town. But we were quite a tribe. And, yeah. I, and um, I think... I mean, there was a club in Gravesend, wasn't there? Wings, but that was like, yeah. just people used to just but go and so punch, have a punch up. It was so violent. Yeah, I remember... <laughs> I remember the first time I went to a club yeah, that yeah. wasn't, actually wasn't even Lazy yeah. Lady or Goldmine, but in London, which was Global Village. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it didn't end with a fight. And you're like, wow, this is an interesting... How do yeah, you yeah. know what time it is to go yeah. home? It doesn't end with a yeah. fight. It's quite funny that um, all all the clubs I made my name at in Kent, I mean the Nelson was between me and you. We knew why that why that was there, but really for proper clubs I had to go to Margate, uh, or I started to play um, at the Hilltop and Kings Lodge near Brands Hatch, <coughs> or um, in Ashford or Tunbridge Wells. I, I had started to do shows. It was the Bridge Maidstone. Club, yeah, in Faversham or Canterbury yeah, around. Yeah. 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 So actually, well look, that's. That segued nicely into, uh, from the Nelson to Margate, that was a, a period that was so exciting, it seemed like, and it was, um, you know, it was like a pilgrimage, wasn't yeah. it? You, you could not 
you couldn't avoid Margate. We lived in Gravesend. It was fifty miles away, but it just yeah. it was it was calling you in to the sands. It was the, running as far as you could get in the other direction <laughs> exactly. from, from London. Yeah, yeah. and, and I, I suppose you had you either got on a milk train and got home from uh, like the the Global Village or something, or yeah. you went for the weekend. You went down to yeah. to Margate and. Um, I think, I think the yeah the interesting thing about Margate is it had again it had this kind of musical divide because the reason everyone went to Margate I think I believe you're probably better on this than I am but was that almost going back to the rock and roll times yeah. of the Ted, Teddy Boys and like the bikers you suggesting going down. I'm older than you hmm? yeah no, no, no I just think <laughs> <laughs> no I think that um, so Margate had always been course, this bank holiday spot game um, warfare on yeah. the seafront yeah but this this kind of um, this underground like soul soul disco different music was 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 starting to emerge in Margate and they had had, had this amazing venue called Dreamland yeah yeah well Atlantis, um, the Atlantis which was in the you, yeah. you would be a resident yeah. in there I I guess for I don't know if it was well no I used own... to go I used to go like for all the big weekends right, so it was all yeah. especially like because yeah. we have so many so obviously May there was two and then they'd be there in August again so that was like a very that was pr- probably one of the first places um you kind of fought to play out like now it's about being a, on a festival lineup but right. back then to be the DJ at Atlantis on a bank holiday weekend was a, was a big thing so and then event and then I had that other gig down there around that came off the back of that which was Hades oh yeah so I did yeah. this place I mean this is just another weird one like I did I think my residency was on a Monday night and we used to drive down there like every Monday in a transit van full of people and it was busy it was like it's unheard of oh, what the hell? Yeah. but um, and I don't know what licensing because licensing was like draconian in, in, in Britain well, they, well it was all dayers in Atlantis do, but, it was, yeah. but it was underground wasn't it so it was in darkness um, I remember you used to come, yeah, come does that make a difference <laughs> no no but coming from like the ice cream cone yeah. you know um, fish and chips of upstairs and like broad daylight heading down to this den of iniquity into the Atlantis um, that was that was yeah. really the place where I think you know when you've got that this super excitement yeah. about yeah. you're going to be in this club it's going to be yeah. all your mates you you would dance all lunchtime. yeah no the, the other thing is obviously the dancers were stars more than the DJs so that's another thing we should touch on about that time was actually the dance the people on the dance floor were really what led the scene and that was like it was like a dancing competition like it was. these incredible yeah, yeah, yeah. there was this guy Tony Lee that was one of the, the best dancers in the southeast went, went on to dance in Paris at the Lido actually years later but um, yeah the Atlantis and there was the southern soul versus yeah. the northern soul yeah and I, I remember yeah. going up to Wigan yeah. where a bunch of us had gone up just looking at these guys who had this yeah. sports bag yeah. and they kind yeah. of claim their spot yeah, they and then they would even take more. up so much yeah. room dancing you yeah. couldn't possibly have done that in Atlantis for example we wouldn't have the luxury of the space no. but Wigan Ballroom they all had their bit in there and, and they were yeah. pretty good dancers yeah. I have to say so from Margate and that time you went into the music business though didn't you yeah. know a bit about London Records or yeah I mean I, I DJing back then wasn't considered to be a full-time job. It was well, definitely it was a I professional mean, hobby. <laughs> so I um, I kind of dived into pirate radio and proper radio. Like I had a look around there, and I liked that, but I didn't want to do that full-time. I only, I only wanted to do that if I could play the music I liked. So that made me a kind of specialist DJ that, again, meant you were doing one-offs rather than a nine-to-five job. And then... Um, Record companies weren't quite ready for me yet, so I got a job in a music magazine called Blues and Soul magazine. So that was my first job in London where I got 
a company car and everything. And that was um, wow. 1979, I think, till, till 1983. And I, 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 I was obsessed by Paulie Yates. And Paulie Yates well, wrote, 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 wrote in Record Mirror. <laughs> but she had this kind of gossip column format. Again, it sounds cranky think, thinking about it now, but it really was groundbreaking. She wrote about the scene kind of thing. And so I was like, I'm gonna, I want to do a Paulie Yates column for a, for a dance magazine called Blues and Soul. And um, the guys that ran Blues and Soul saw me at a DJ competition at Leicester Square where, where I thought I was going to win with all my mates come up from Gravesend, but I ended up coming like second or third. But they offered me a job that night to come for the magazine. And I, so, but the day I went into work, they said, oh, here's your car. I was like, well, this is good. I wasn't expecting this. And the reason you've got it is because you're going to go out and sell advertising. So I was like, no, 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 no. I'm here to write the Paulie Yates column. For, I write, I'm here to write about music. He's like, no, yeah, well, you can do what you like, right, but it, that, that's not going to pay the bills, so you better get out there and sell ads. So I, I, I was running around London selling adverts to predominantly reggae shops because they had another magazine called Black Music, which was predominantly covered the reggae scene. And I was, you know, chasing, like, Jamaicans, like, for, for their payments, for their, um, for their ads in the back of the paper where they used to list all the records and they, and they would they were so tricky if there was one spelling mistake they wouldn't pay the bill and i got chased a couple of times by you know people who pulled guns and stuff like that it was it was oh quite quite God, a debt collecting ed- education Death, yeah on craven yeah. park road um so then but then you know I, I i definitely built my name up through blues and soul magazine and still djing at the same time but and then eventually obviously you're talking to the record business the whole time and i got to know a few more people and end up with joining a label that was just starting um, called London Records, which which was an old label, but it was kind of relaunched in 1983. So I joined these two guys, these like maverick guys, um, one called Roger Ames and one called Tracy Bennett. And I'd I'd stayed with them for pretty much 18, 19 years. And it was was a hell of a ride. Um, The first day I got to work, we we had a number one record in the charts um, because they both had been at, one had been at Decker and signed Bananarama, Tracy. And Roger had signed Dexy's Midnight Runners, um, Soft Cell. He'd had, he'd, had an, uh, he'd had an incredible run. And he was, so they were brought together as this partnership. And the day I got to the off, the first day that I got to work, we were already number one in the charts with um, Candy Girl by New Edition. Oh, yeah. And it was from, it was like baptism, baptism of fire. And I started signing records quite quickly, signed Run DMC. Um, signed a bunch of like early dance records like Joyce Sims and then they gave they gave me my own label in I started my own label in 1986 called FFRR which was part of the old London Records logo if you look closely at the old London logo it has a stamp of quality on the top um, and it says full frequency range recordings and at the time there was all these labels starting like Def Jam that we thought were like super cool and they were black and white logos, and we we were a black and white logo. So I thought instead of like making up a name, we'll just take this symbol, which kind of was a, it almost was it was the equivalent of saying mono or stereo or Dolby or something. It was it was an old um, recording standard. Yeah. So it, it became you know pretty legendary um, house and dance music labels. So, and then I, 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 I guess in the eighties I was the dance specialist, but by the end of the eighties I was doing, I was working with all sorts of bands. And I'd worked all through the 80s with Bananarama, helping them. And then when they split up, um, I was always closest with Siobhan. And um, and then and she got together with Dave Stewart. And then uh, this girl, Marcy Detroit, and they formed Shakespeare Sisters. So I signed them directly to me. 
Um, and their first record was actually, even though they don't, they weren't really a dance band. They were actually, if you look back, they were on FFRR actually. Yeah. Um, and that first two albums kind of exploded. Um, we had a big hit straight away with your history, and then we end, and on the second album we had Stay, uh, which which was number one in America. Um, and there was a time in nineteen. So what did I was going do? to America all the time then, yeah. and it was licensing records, and obviously, and we were getting so successful, we opened our own label in the U.S. So we opened London Records in New York, and there was a moment in my life where, like Roger, wanted me to go to New York and live there, but um, I just got married. I just got on Radio One, and I just um, my wife got pregnant with my first kid, Joe. So it was like I don't think I'm leaving the UK right now. Um, so it, that didn't happen at that time. But um, well, fortunately, yeah. you didn't go back yeah. to the security of the yeah, company yeah, car exactly, to send advertising exactly, yeah. space. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> when when you get Run DMC come to town today, or did you were you just going right? Okay, when they for, for the UK. No, what, or no something, so what happened? You... No, no, so they were signed to Profile Records, which was a little independent company in New York, and the game was what we used. To, there was there was a lot of those, you know, all the early rap hits and all of dance music weren't weren't signed to major labels. They were all signed to independent companies, predominantly out of New York or Chicago, Detroit, sometimes Miami. And so we we the English label would go over and try and do a deal. Um, the absolute minimum was the UK, but but that that never happened back then. Um, it was always we try and do it for the world outside of America. Right. So we made because um, we put the network together from everything else. So. It was, we weren't hands-on like in the studio signing them from the very beginning, but we were integral to the building of the act. So, um, yeah, I signed Run DMC on the album before Raising Hell and then um, worked with them and got to know Rick Rubin and Russell and Leor and the management team uh, as they were making that second album and and, raised, and, and obviously um, Walk This Way was on that and we were able to, and the fight, the, the money that we brought in to the table was definitely got their attention um, and it obviously broke them internationally which allowed them to then go and tour um, but yeah I, brought, I, I did bring Run DMC to London for the first time and I remember we took them to I was talking to Leo about this the other day I took them to an Indian restaurant um, and on Westbourne Park Road and the minute they just halfway through the meal they just got up all left and sat on the pavement outside and um Russell and Leo were there. It's like, what, what, what? Did we, uh, we've blown the deal or something. They don't, they don't want to be with us. What happened? They said, no, no, they just hate, hate hanging around, hate restaurants, and like, as soon as they finish their food, they leave. <laughs> like we. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that sounds like. Where were you fitting in the DJ in then? Was was it? Was, I, I, I don't know. It was it was all consuming. I don't, yeah, I was I was basically working during the week and DJing at the weekends. It was pretty full on. Um, so yeah, and then, and <laughs> I don't then, remember much of the nineties. So that well, I was living in America then, yeah, yeah. so I, I'd completely lost touch with a lot of what was going on over yeah. here during those those times. But I suppose you know very much aware that there was this sort of this island called Ibiza that was uh, suddenly yep. it seemed like if you're away from it and you have to say it's not like now you, you just go I've got to go to New York for the weekend I mean coming back from it I was living in LA would have been like a monster journey and you came came back once a year to see your parents so I kind of missed as it was being established Start, yeah, yeah. And when I when I came back by then I think I probably got to know you anyway yeah. and, uh, 
and and sort of he just went on and went into it. But those those first years must have been crazy years. I mean, and your influence and yeah, I mean, everything I went, I went to the island. Yeah, I went late eighties at the beginning. Um, we I, I went with a guy called Nicky Holloway, um, and Trevor Fung, and we went we went with we went the idea was you went with 30 or 40 mates and they you got to play in these clubs and like if you brought the people there was there was that was the financial transaction and we got kicked out of a couple and we were successful at a couple that was all around the same time of the infamous trip that Paul Oakenfold did with Danny Rampling and and with Nicky and and a guy called Johnny Walker which is the the legend of like discovering amnesia and discovering um ecstasy and discovering Alfredo the DJ there um and then from, and then in the very late eighties, that that, the influence of that visit and that time was when we all started clubs in London. So, Paul started Spectrum at Heaven. Um, Nicky Holloway started um, a place called Trip, which was basically at the Astoria, and I I was his partner in that, um, and DJed regularly. And then um, Danny Rampney had Jum, um, which was probably the most famous of all. So, so then, the- so the, the, so basically we got. It was like the, we were really the end of the 80s. It was more about the Ibiza influence on us and what we did with it back in London. By 91, when Manumission started um, at a place called Coup, which is now Privilege, they they were the first first ones that were doing regular parties in Ibiza. And then we were, I, was, I was going out DJing for them. And then Space, and then Amnesia, and then Pasha, obviously. And so yeah. in the 90s, it was really going there regularly in the summer and just doing a few shows and coming back. And the season was shorter. The parties were a little bit more infrequent. Um, and it, was, it wasn't really until the end of the 90s and the start of the 2000s where the, where the Ibiza you know today was really born. Um, so, and that's when I started working regular um, at what I would call a proper residency at Pasha. Yeah, I'm um, at the beginning. Like two, it was 2002, 2003 when I started doing every week, um, which is when you came back into the mix. It's just that it's not necessary to be there every week like that now. No, um, no, but back then it was. It was just the front line of everything. So yeah, it it seemed relevant. Was that really the sort of emergence of of a superstar DJ? You know that that you know you. Yeah, I mean the, the terms the term superstar DJ actually did. It was really it was born in mid 90s. Um, so it was the, the, the mid. It was really the UK media. Mates of mine, actually, a guy called Ben Turner that you know. Um, he was editor of um, Music Magazine, which was a dance magazine that's yeah. like rival to Mix Mag, not around anymore. He was the first person to put. A, he put Sasha on the cover of a famously and um, called him the Son of God and put a halo over his head. And so it was, it was the mid nineties where the term superstar DJ really first emerged, and it was the first time like the. Yeah, the money got crazier. That you know, people would, would you know, the beginning of the nineties. You got to remember, like the DJs wanted to be in the hottest clubs, and obviously, we, you know, it was it was great. But really, people were coming for the club. Like from the mid nineties onwards, people started coming for the yeah. DJ, and the DJ yeah. started moving around and became more of a kind of a hard ticket item. Um, and I and that's when I did the annual for the first time with Boy George, mid ninety five, ninety six. It sold a million copies of a compilation album, a physical, um, which is just unheard of. So all these like um, kind of records start getting broken. But but the and then so coming back to Ibiza and the, these DJs that then could hold residencies. So they yeah, the Roger Sanchez, the 
Frankie Knuckles, David Morales, um, Carl Cox, Paul Oakenfold, Pete Tong. We, we, we were starting to do regular nights in Ibiza. And it, at the beginning of the 2000s, it was really dominated by the Brits. Yeah. Because we had, the, we, had, you know, we had Radio 1, we had me on Radio 1 kind of spreading the message. And we had all the dance magazines really came out of the UK that everybody around the world was kind of following mixed mag and music magazines. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I, um, I mean, by the time I was hanging out with you, I mean, I, I would turn up like because I was on a holiday. Yeah. And you'd be there and you'd go, okay, what time would you go? I'm on at four. I'd go, yeah. what? <laughs> what kind of yeah. working hours are these? I'm on at yeah. four. I mean, AM. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or it would be three. It would never be, I'm on at midnight. We'd, so we, we would meet, wouldn't we? Like have dinner. Well, sometimes so, I think in the early days we tried to go all the way through, and then that yeah. wasn't very healthy. And which then, no, yeah. which I was going to get to that point yeah. because I think you can't, you know, there's no way you can separate like being a, a the, you know, your lifestyle, your profession, your everything, and without this sort of hedonistic thing, which yeah. is what I, I think there was that that would have been the term that summed up Ibiza really, yeah. and uh, and it was just great fun. It was hedonistic, so you know you kind of lose a few along the way. Um, sadly, but that's what happens. Yeah. But I, I think you've managed. Well, you've pulled through. <laughs> you 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 seem to have. I mean, there may there may be bumps in the road. I don't know. But as far as I'm concerned, you you seem to have maintained pretty much a solid. Yeah, there's, def- there's definitely bumps everything. in the road. There's definitely bumps in the road. I think I think starting so early. At a different time. I mean, I guess and being. I don't know if we were built in a different way. <laughs> But you know, in its own way, I guess like Atlantis was pretty hedonistic. I don't know. You just, I think there's an element of um, pacing yourself. I, I think the other things. I always had a job. You know, a lot of, you know, because I started working in the late '70s and then all the way through the '80s had a day job. I just had that anchor, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a lot of DJs that became, you know, DJs that started in the mid '90s who then never had to have a job and they were making crazy money. From day one, but that's but they could only make that money if they went to work. So, you know, a lot of my contemporaries in the mid '90s had to work five or six days a week, and and started travelling outside the UK for the first time. And that's when I think it got really, really hard. I never had to do that. I mean, it seems like I've been around forever, but I never, I never, because of the day job, I couldn't go off on tour for six months. But and equally. At the weekend, I couldn't go missing and not turn up on Monday morning, or I'd lose my job. So, um, and maybe already I was a little bit older. It was I was a little bit lucky, yeah. you know, because um, yeah. I wasn't. I was thirty, not twenty, and I think that's a massive difference. Yeah. So I think that helped. But I, I you know, I got I, I was married before and had three kids and got divorced. So and that and definitely my lifestyle had something to do with that and being, you know, so that that teaches you a lot as well it does I'm exactly yeah, yeah. the same yeah. but it's funny actually you said well we made of different yeah. stuff and think about where you were born you were born yeah. in West Hill Hospital yeah. 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 so was I so was yeah. Mick Jagger so, so was Mick Keith Jagger, yeah. so was Keith Richards yeah, yeah, yeah. you go okay <laughs> there something. has to be something in the water yeah. that uh, keeps you slim <laughs> and <laughs> keeps you going yeah. yeah it's quite funny because I, I've definitely I mean maybe more for me because I'm sort of Tiny, yeah. but and and so are those two guys, and there's he comes up. I'm sure, Ronnie Wood wasn't. Time. Ronnie you know, Wood go, wasn't from our hospital as well. No, yeah. he could have been though, couldn't yeah. he? And they go, he said, was there something, you know, about that place? Go, no, not really. It was just a freaking. Is when we were all born. I only met Mick Jagger like the last couple of years for the first time, and um, he said to me, 
we're related, funny enough. I said, yeah, I know we're related. We came from the same hospital. He said, no, no, we're really related. I said, well, only by some like gypsy coincidence then you're, you're saying of like all people from Dartford. Yeah. <laughs> Must have been. Or Did he Graves have some End. real grounds for that? He said, he, he said there was some document somewhere that, yeah, our paths crossed. So, but I haven't followed up with him yet. That's quite funny because you're yeah. both with the yeah. most bizarre surnames. Yeah. Jagger, yeah, Jagger and, and Tom, Tom. I yeah, know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's really funny. Yeah. We, which brings me to that, actually, is we can go, while we're still on that period of Ibiza and stuff, it's like, when did it happen that it all went a bit peak Tom? Um, that was actually from much earlier. So we, we wind right the way back to um, the mid-80s, actually. So you go back, you've, you've had the beetroot and the wag, the wag club was the thing. Yeah. So the wag club was this club on... Was it Wardour Street? Street? Yeah, no, I think Wardour Street. Yeah. One of them. South yeah. of Shaftesbury Avenue, yeah. though. Um, and it was the Velvet Rope. It was modelled on the Studio 54, kind of, you know, we yeah. want to keep the riffraff out and only the cool kids get in. It was the time of the Face magazine. Chris Sullivan was involved in running it. Um, he had that band, Blue Rondo Ella Turk. Um, so that was, a you know, that was, that was edgy, celebrity, fashionable London. Um, and just... And so I was always trying to get in there and like be, and that's that was the, when I first met the likes of like Gary Kemp and the, all the Spandau guys. Boy George, um, I Boy George, Marilyn, Philip yeah. Salon, um, and everything was always exclusive. And when Acid House came along, it kind of it, it democratized all that, and the Velvet Rope went away, and it was about everybody coming in. Just at the crossover of that period, um, there was this crew called the Raid, the Raid Crew. They had a fanzine called Boy's Own, and it was when I first met. He only passed away last week, very sadly, Andy Weatherall. Mm. Um, Terry Farley, Pete Heller, a mad guy called Gary Hazeman, who's also not with us anymore. Um, and they were there, and Steve Lee, and they had this collective, they had this fanzine, and they were writing about the very beginnings of house music. And because I was a soul boy, and they knew it, and I was a little bit, and I was also into hip-hop and stuff like that, they used to take the mickey out of me. So it was like, we kind of like you, but you're not really meant to be with us because you're not, you know, they, they, the house music was seen like punk rock. It was like year zero of like a restart. So anyone that was came from before didn't count. But somehow I managed to get in the gang. But so the, but their way of ribbing me was to take the piss out of me um, in, the, in the fanzine. So the, it was that crew that first came up with the It's All Gone Pete Tong line. And at, at first it was meant to be kind of nicely spiteful. And it just... Obviously, I don't know, like you know, snowballed from there and just became something else years years later. I mean, I, I did a film um, all through being involved with London Records. We were doing soundtracks and stuff like that and obviously trying to record the cultural significance of what had happened through like the rise of house music and the, the rave scene. And, you know, we, we, we wanted to document it. So I did a film called Human Traffic um, that, that came like late 90s. Um, and by then, it was like it's all gone. Pete Tong yeah. was was, was always part of the vernacular, and and well, off the back of Human Traffic it. with the same crew, I ended up making the movie, which was early two thousands. So the, Human Traffic was about a bunch of kids, you know, living for the pills and the weekend and the head and the, the, the experience of the music. And Human and All Gone Pete Tong was really about the story of the emergence of a superstar DJ. So, um, but it all went back and started with Boys Own. So. Yeah. It's uh, interesting when you talk about Andy yeah. Warhol because there's there's a creation rec music like movies just about to come out. Yeah, yeah, about, about creation, creation records. records yeah, yeah. Yeah.
that period of, of, of Ibiza definitely changed, didn't it? It changed. Yeah. It became, I suppose, it it became much more like it took on a bit of Saint-Tropez. It started to take on a very flashy kind of new finish. Yeah, I mean, I mean we, 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 I, I feel that I was very much part of encouraging that at the beginning, you know, because we, when I started working with Pasha, Pasha was, was kind of a place where there was quite down market parties in, you know, like Ministry of Sound, no disrespect, was like a kind of real punter's night there. And when I started working with Pasha, I, I used to look at this amazing red book that Pasha had produced with all these glamorous images of like Hollywood stars from like the 70s and 80s like coming over. And it just seemed much more like just, it was these beautiful black and white photos and it just seemed, as I say, glamorous, um, escapist, aspirational. And I was looking around at the people that are actually going to Pasha and it was pretty kind of low rent. So I wanted to kind of re-glamorize and like internationalize, you know, still make it a great place for the Brits to come, but actually make it, you know, just change the kind of perception of it. And we, so we were very encouraging of that kind of the VIP take the us VIP, back. VIP, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was the, it was almost like a, a bit of um, that kind of Caligula Roman amphitheater kind of image I had was like the you know the, the glamorous and the rich around the edges and the and the kind of energy of the real kids, the real music lovers on the dance floor, and that was that. One couldn't survive without the other. No. That's what made it fun. It was no fun for the VIP tables unless the real people were on the dance floor. That was always the perfect mix for me. Um, so we, you know, and it was really knowing a few people that were in Saint Tropez board that were like, oh my God, we can't go to the Cav for no. another night and hear Born to Be Alive. <laughs> you know, there is another, you know, Ibiza can cater for us now and we can hear decent music. And that was really the coming together of the two worlds. And it really did happen at Pasha. In the in the mid two thousands, you know, it, the cynics would say now, although you know, roll roll forward twenty odd years, the dance floor is in danger basically, and it's like, is it affordable? How do we keep making sure the kids come? Because so many nights are now dominated by the VIP, and there's there's almost not enough. Well, you got VIP yeah. only club. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. is I don't know about that one. Yeah. But, uh, you get these scenes of like you know yeah. a twenty person a ten person table you know, for X thousands of euros, you know, with 30 people around it and then the dance floor empty. Yeah, <laughs> like, how ridiculous. So, yeah, and the yeah. toilet will be full. Yeah, and that yeah. happened That yeah. happened last year. So. No, so I, I think, you know, like, yeah. whether, whether we feel it's, yeah. it's at its day or not, it's just changed and everything yeah. changes. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I still work in a beef I still get a lot out of it. I don't spend as much time as I used to. Maybe it's time to open an underground club in Saint-Tropez. Ah, <laughs> Turn well, it on that's its head. it. Playing young, rare French house. <laughs> my youngest daughter, who's of course close <laughs> to yours one of your sons is uh she's just been living in china and uh she somehow had got herself involved with this club called elevator which yeah. was uh in shanghai yeah. and we went there christmas day so i had my christmas yeah. lunch and my wife and i go i'm like you know yeah. we were like a novelty you know this is yeah. wow you bought your parents yeah. and they they like, they like it, it. so we're in this it, it looked like a bunker that could have been in in uh, berlin, berlin. Yeah, yeah. yeah brilliant it was absolutely yeah. brilliant had a bit of, of a feeling of, of that yeah. sort of definitely was underground but uh, yeah. and then of course that all came to an end with this uh, coronavirus yeah. let's just go on to um, the the IB for classics orchestra because that's yeah. that's a massive massive step that you took that's could have been a one-off I don't know what the plan was but it's just become it's got its own life now it's uh, yeah it's um it was a very happy accident kind of thing or, or an invitation in 2015 to do to do 
one show at the proms. The proms wanted to do something a bit younger, a bit kind of hipper, and kind of reinvent their image with a younger audience. And um, so they asked Radio One if we wanted to do something, and I, I kind of got involved and said yes. So it started us often as an appointment with me and Jules Buckley working on this show for six months, which obviously we did in July of that year. And the whole thing just went viral, and it, um, I think you were there that first. That, I went that, the first yeah, one. the first yeah, one, yeah. 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 Um, and Royal Albert Hall. Cool, yeah. That was the first one, yeah. yeah. And obviously, just after that show, everyone was buzzing and like just felt like we'd just discovered something completely, you know, um, a, a real gem. Um, and there, there was a lot of demand, a lot of kind things said online, and it was beautifully filmed by the BBC, so it's pinged out all over the world. And within days, like people were banging the door down for yeah. us to do it again. Yeah. Took took quite a while. It took eighteen months for it to get back out there. So it was the end of the following year where we went and did the O2. Um, and we did Manchester and Birmingham, sold them all out, and here we are, you know, five years on, and it's still going strong. Five so years. Five years. Wow. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, end of twenty twenty will be the fifth. Yeah. I mean, so. I think that you know, as just someone who's been in the audience, yeah. I think three times now, including once at Sandown Racecourse, which yeah, was yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. brilliant, because I, I, um, it'd been the racing all day. Yeah. <laughs> you, you and I were trying to get together. He went, look, come yeah. to Sandown. I'm doing a gig. So like, right, I'll yeah. be there. So just get on the train, go down there. <laughs> One of your guys meets me at the entrance and says, look, if you hurry up, he says, oh, it's your birthday. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the orchestra are going to bring out a cake. I was like, the orchestra? He forgot <laughs> he didn't to even mention. Imagine. You yes. forgot to mention it was, so it was that night. And it was such a blast. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, having seen that from, I suppose that was like almost five years of, yeah, since yeah. the beginning. But the fact that you have your your guests, yeah. they just keep it moving yeah, and changing. Yeah. You're not just up there with an orchestra playing some IB for classics. It's much, much more yeah, relevant yeah, yeah, yeah. than that. And, um, and, yeah. and it's something exciting to watch. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's been a great <coughs> thrill. I never, something I never saw coming, but really, really enjoyable. And um, finishes earlier than DJing. It's good, it's good, it's good. Yeah, yeah. And, but <laughs> yeah. it's a lot, like, logistically. Yeah, I mean, it's the reason we can't do more around. of it. It's 65 people on stage. Um, it's been really hard to break it outside the UK for that reason. We took it to Hollywood Bowl, was which was unbelievable. Yeah. We got like, I mean, 10,000 people there. But it's still, you pick, you know, we tr still travel with a core band and then pick up about 30 local players. And we took it to Australia, which was amazing. Did Sydney and Melbourne. Oh um, my God, they must have loved yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Took it yeah. to Ibiza, where, some, where Pasha kind of wrote off the cost based on, it was their 50th birthday. Um, Pasha's fifty. It was. It's already old, over fifty. So not <laughs> wow. yeah, not in Ibiza. I think just the brand itself. Yeah. But, um, it's not far off in Ibiza, but um, so yeah. I mean, we look. We're looking to do more of it. It's just. It's just an amazing thing. So we we already got um, two o twos on sale for the end of this year, and and Manchester and Birmingham. Well, it, it's a bit of a yeah. thing now. Every Christmas ish. Yeah, December, it's like the pantomime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. how perfect. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you go. You talk about add complications. Yeah. You start with one guy yeah. and a couple of decks, and then you've got sixty-five people exactly. on stage. Exactly. Yeah. So look, I I, um, I realise that we're uh, we've said a lot. We've covered a lot yeah. of ground. Been amazing, fascinating, as I knew it would be. But um, so I, I you know where I'm going. I'm going to Gravesend tonight. Ah, well, you see, that was where before I, I ask you when when Kent's going to get yeah. you back because you you did coin the phrase keep it Kent. Kent I think yeah. that means that you will be back at some point. I still have a home there. Tracy's moved back to Margate. Yeah. You 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 will get the call in. But no, I think I think that's more than likely to happen. I think when we were 
when I was living in London all those years, it seemed all my mates, everyone was looking um, west and going to Gloucestershire and all that kind of side of the world. Yeah. But you've, you, no people soul. like you and Tracy have yeah. reinvented Kent. You, you got know, me back to Margate, to by the way. I had, well, I've started playing at Dreamland. I know you again. have. Actually, <laughs> we did, we did, well, yeah. we could do another hour yeah, another yeah, day, yeah. but yeah, because Dreamland is now as you back yeah. on somewhat of a residency. I think you've done two, haven't you? Two or three. Two yeah, or three, yeah. Uh, with, back with the with yeah. the new Dreamland. Yeah. Um, yeah, so anyway, I, if you want me to start looking out for properties, Kent, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm very happy to do that because yeah. Uh, yeah, at some point you'll get you'll get sick of the sunshine and you'll exactly. want to get wet. You'll get it damp again, again yeah. down in Kent. So I look, want that, I want that D Dunkirk view. Yeah, well, that and the spirit, <laughs> the, the spirit, Dunkirk yeah. spirit. Yeah. So uh, thank you so much. Right, You've been you. a brilliant gold digger. I'm glad I knew we you are. would be. I'm glad so, we got uh, it. In. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> thank you. Keep it, Kent. <laughs>